0: good ways before that in the order of our books in the Bible but chronologically in history Ezra was much closer to the time of Haggai Haggai Zechariah and Malachi were three of the last prophets of Israel in the Old Testament before Christ came Haggai's ministry would have been after the exile so if Ezekiel and Daniel were the prophets of the exile, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi were the prophets after the exile, then they would have lived in the general time of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest. And Ezra recounts a lot of the history after the exile. I'd like to consider some of the background of what's going on as the people, as God is bringing the people back from, uh, back into the land after the exile. Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, this is God keeping his word. The Lord stirred up the prophet, the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of the place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So here's the end of the exile. There's a clear indication to build the temple God is specifically identified as the God who is in Jerusalem. Can you imagine reading this somewhere at the nether ends of the Persian Empire? God appointed him to build him a temple in Jerusalem. If you're a Jew, that would be amazing to read. Turn over to Ezra chapter 3. You see how the people respond. Verse one. Now, when the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua the son of Je- Jozadak and his brothers and priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. So there's great eagerness on the part of the people. They're obeying the law. They're fearing God. They're fearing the people. But they're establishing worship. Then look down in verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Look down in verse 8. Now... In the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josedek and the rest of their brothers the priests and the Levites and, those, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And they commenced the work. They set up worship there. They lay the foundation. But then if you look down in chapter 4, verse 4, they meet some opposition. They lay the foundation of the temple, but then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So it would have been Cyrus, then his son then the general, Darius, would have taken over from his son, I believe, is how it goes. Maybe there was another king in there. I'm not remembering exactly. Look down in verse 23 of the same chapter. There's a letter that they write to stop the work. Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem, to the Jews, and stopped them by force of arms. Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So there was a lot of eagerness, there was some momentum this way, people returned, there's record of that in Ezra. They start the sacrifices, try to reinstitute worship, eventually they lay the foundation, but then they're opposed and they're forced by arms, Uh, they're... The people stopped them by force of arms and a dictate from the king. Now finally, turn over to Ezra 5, verse 1. We're just kind of setting some background before we turn to Haggai. This is about 20 years later, in the year 520 B.C. This all started in 539, so this is about 20 years later. When the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So the work was stopped by political pressure, by political dictate. And in the meantime, if you study this period of history, there was a lot of upheaval, political upheaval in Persia. But finally, after 20 years, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were instrumental in getting the people to resume and ultimately, in a span of just four years, to finish rebuilding the temple, as was God's purpose for them. If you turn to Haggai chapter 1, this is where Haggai comes in. And we read this morning... As you turn, I'll just review a little bit. In the second year of Darius the king, very precise date, Haggai comes to these same men, Zerubbabel and Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, clearly the same person. He's often referred to as Joshua in other writings. Haggai brings these leaders, brings these people who had started out well, who had faced some pressure, and then who had stopped doing God's work. They have an encounter with the priority of God. That's the title this evening. An encounter with the priority of God. If you have paragraphs in your Bible, you may see, we won't take the time to read the whole chapter again this, this evening, since we did that this morning. But You see three divisions here. God comes with a word through the prophet Haggai. And what God does is he confronts the people. He really is indicting them about their priorities. The key verse here is verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. God addresses the fact that they are living in their houses, but they're neglecting this. God indicts them. He he accuses them. He confronts them with what has become their priority in the meantime. And then the second paragraph, he doesn't just confront them. He actually directs them about their activity and about his glory, what they should be doing, what their priority should be. He corrects them after he confronts them. And then finally, graciously, in the last paragraph, verse 12, down through the end of the chapter, God comforts them. He comforts his people once they obey, and he assures them of his help. It's a very gracious, a very tender encounter as the people are are tender to the word of the Lord, and they respond with a whole heart. But first, here in verses 1 through 6, we see how God indicts his people about their priority, and you see the context of this encounter in the first few verses. The second year of Darius the king, this would be Darius the great, I believe, uh, how is it in Greek? Hustaspes, Hustaspes, I think is how you would say it. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So what's the time of the confrontation? Well, it's a very precise date. All of In the book of Haggai, Haggai gives four different prophecies in the span of about 15 years. Weeks, about four months' time. Soon after, Darius the Great would have claimed the throne in Persia, about 522. And here on the first of the sixth month, if you read the Law of Israel and look in Numbers, it was their custom on the first day of the month to celebrate the new moon feast that would normally occur on the first day when they would offer special sacrifices at the temple. And that would have been an appropriate day to confront them about the temple because it would have been most obvious that it wasn't there when they would have been coming to the altar and to the foundation of the temple, which had been laid but had been abandoned. But who's the agent of the confrontation? It's Haggai. He's the first prophet to speak after the exile. Daniel and Ezekiel had spoken during, Zechariah was ministering around the same time, Malachi was ministering after him, but this is the first word from the Lord that's been heard in Jerusalem for quite some time. And who are the hearers? It's these two leaders in particular. Zerubbabel, who's actually in the line of David. He's kind of the the main leader and the governor of the first return. You think in terms of returns to Jerusalem, there's Zerubbabel, and then Ezra leads a group, and then later Nehemiah comes. Zerubbabel was the first one, with Joshua the high priest. The two most influential people in the city at the time, the spiritual leaders of the people who are being are the ones who are being confronted. And you notice here, there's an emphasis in this book. It's the word of the Lord coming. And there's often this phrase, thus says the Lord. What is the means of this confrontation? It's direct revelation, special revelation. God communicated through the prophet his exact message that he wanted delivered to these hearers. Everything that Haggai records is exactly what God said. And that's what prophets do. They say what God says. So that's the context of the encounter. We've kind of laid a foundation. But what is, what is the substance of this encounter? What's going on? What is God addressing them about and really indicting them over? Well, you see in verse 2, they, there was a kind of a settled opinion in Jerusalem at the time that God draws to their attention. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says... They're they're saying it. It's so kind of proverbial that everybody's, you know, it's kind of accepted knowledge. It's the wisdom of the day. The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. It was not time to rebuild the temple. Based on their history with Cyrus giving a command that you should go build the temple, it seems that this is something they have convinced themselves of. They certainly had a clear indication to start the temple. They had initial success, but then, of course, they met this opposition. And they began thinking that the timing was wrong. Maybe they were looking at prophecy and saying, you know, maybe the 70 years isn't up yet. God said we would be in exile for 70 years. Maybe it hasn't been 70 years. Maybe they were saying the, the political climate was too adverse to resume the project. They didn't have city walls yet. They couldn't protect the temple even if they got it up. There was too much upheaval. The time's not right. Or maybe they figured the economic circumstances weren't right. They didn't have enough money to get going again. Can you hear them saying, "The fields didn't yield enough this year. We can't start this year. We need to have we need to have a good crop so we can then devote ourselves to the temple work once we have what we need." There were probably numerous legitimate sounding excuses really reasons that were being attached to this but this was the opinion the prevailing wisdom of the day in jerusalem that the time wasn't right to build the temple and what is significant about the temple well this is where god met with them isn't it it's where he had placed his name god had chosen zion It's kind of the, someone called it the the representative location of God's covenant with his people. The the rebuilding of the temple would be the clearest sign to the Jews and to the world that God really had brought his people back from the ends of the earth, just like he said he would. If you look down in verse 8, God says, "...go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified." Something about the temple being rebuilt had to do with God's glory, and I I believe it has to do with kind of the second exodus, this towering event in the Old Testament where God had said repeatedly throughout uh, Israel's history that you're going to disobey me, and I'm going to send you to the ends of the earth, but then I'm going to call you back, and everyone's going to know it, and I'm going to be the God who brought my people back from exile. We could look at instances and. evidence of this, but there was significance to this, to God. And God is bringing this up, indicting them. And then he really presents the actual evidence, not just what he's heard them saying, but the evidence that makes it so indicative of where their hearts really are. It's really convicting evidence. What what does verse 3 say? The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, perhaps in another place, perhaps with the people, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? This word paneled here is translated a few different ways. It could mean like the kinds of luxurious, ornate, expensive panels that Solomon would have had hanging over the walls in his house. Or it could, could just mean roofed houses, finished houses. You finished your house. I think that's more in view here. Could be either. It's translated both ways. Either way, they certainly have what they need. And it's obvious in God's indictment and God's accusation and the evidence He brings against them that they've made their houses, their own houses, their priority. They've said, it's not time for God's house, it's time to dwell in our houses. And God is questioning. Their priority. He asks a question. Is it time for you, you, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, my house, lies desolate? God is saying, you say that the time isn't right for this endeavor. And God is questioning that. He's casting doubt in their minds. They had grown self-centered in their outlook, and they needed confronted. About their priorities. Your priorities are wrong, God says. And He gives them evidence that shows that they're wrong. And then He draws attention to a number of things that really should have been getting their attention recently. See this in verse 5? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Notice first that he's addressing them with really a splendorous title. He's the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies, a great and glorious God, a victorious God who has victory over all of his enemies, a praiseworthy God, he has a word about your priority, about your neglect of the house of his praise. That's who's speaking. And he brings up to them these red flags of discipline, the things that should have been getting their attention. He says, consider your ways, or you may have a margin, marginal note, set your heart on your ways. Look carefully to what's been going on in your circumstances. Meditate on what's been happening. Evaluate them. Reflect on them. God uses the same word in Job chapter 1 when the, when Satan arrives. And God asks him, Where, what are you doing? Where have you been? And he says, I've been roaming to and out fro throughout the earth. And God brings up Job for consideration. Have you considered my servant Job? Have you set your heart to my servant Job? God is asking for Job to be scrutinized. That's a significant part of understanding that book. But he's saying, think about what how, how much integrity this man has. And ultimately, we know that that all of Job's integrity and his faith that wavers but doesn't break, that's really what glorifies God the most and shows Satan to be such a fool. But God is telling the people here, consider, think about it. What's been going on recently? What have you been up to? And really, he's drawing attention to his providence in their lives. Someone said, the people must consider, give careful thought to their circumstances and experiences in order that they may deduce from them the correct conclusions someone's called this the book of providence God wants them to read the book of providence and he wants them to learn about their priorities from it and then he wants them to learn about his priorities as well and what is it it's really economic consequences that all of them would have been feeling there is a general neediness and a lack of success in normal endeavors and it's frustrating the things they've been doing has been to no avail You can almost hear someone saying or thinking, we're the people of God in the promised land. At least I came back. Why isn't God blessing me? Isn't that what he promised? But I believe a key part of what's going on is that these are circumstances that should have been familiar to them. As these were very often attached to curses for breaking covenant with God. If you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, When Moses is giving the law again, Moses chapter 28, there are many blessings and curses given in the law. If you obey, I will bless you. You'll have abundance of every kind. If you break covenant, there will be consequences And you can read these all over the book of Deuteronomy. But look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 38. This is written in their law. It says, You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locusts will consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you will not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives will drop off. And then if he speaks of captivity and the exile. But these are consequences that had already happened in their history as they had broken covenant with God. And God is saying, consider what's been going on. Consider your circumstances. Consider your ways. And we'll address that exact part of the statement the next time it comes up. Pay attention. These are things that should be getting your attention, but they're not, God says. These weren't just natural phenomena, even though they may have had natural things. Oh, uh, we had a plant blight this year. We, the, all of my plants got that same disease. Or there were locusts that came. Man, tough luck. No, God says. This isn't just natural This is God's judgment, and he's drawing attention to his providence so that they can learn. He's confronting them with their priorities, however silently those might have been operating in their minds, and he's giving them an encounter with his priorities. So God brings this accusation against them that they've done something wrong. They've really omitted something that they shouldn't have omitted. They've neglected a duty that they should have completed. And he sends Haggai with this evidence from their own mouths and from the state of the temple and from the state of their own houses and God kind of shines the flashlight on it. He brings it right out to the surface, right in the open. And shows how it's wrong and how he's been intending to get their attention about it. But God doesn't just present evidence and convict them of sin. He actually corrects them. He points them in the right direction both to the work they should do as well as the motive behind it. They need to do God's work. And they need to do it for God's glory and His honor among them and among the nations. So God is directing in the next verses the Jews about their activity and about His glory. Thus says the Lord of hosts, here it is again, "'Consider your ways, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified,' says the Lord." You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I call for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. So this is severe. God is bringing it against them. He's really opposed to them, much like he was opposed to the people of Israel before they went out of the land in the exile. And God is telling them, consider your ways. And I believe as God is repeating this, it's not just consider your circumstances, but consider the path that you're headed down. This is what you did in your history. You rejected me. You broke covenant with me. And look where that got you before. Is this really the path you want to be on? And then the other command... Go get what you need and get to work right away. This is the priority of God. And what is it? Certainly the temple, but what does God want from this? What is the motive for them that I may be pleased with it and be glorified? I think this is really the heart of what's going on in this. God's priority was, God's priority is, His honor and glory among men certainly among the Jews in Jerusalem, even here today. God wanted them to recognize his covenant with them. He wanted this this declaration of his power to rescue them from captivity. God's glory is God's priority. That's what he's confronting them with. And that's right. That's right for God to do. Because God is the greatest. He is the best. He's the creator. He is the only good He is eternal, and it's right for him to value himself most highly. Would it be right for you or I to do that? No, because we are not good. We are not the best, but God is. He is the best for anyone. He is the best in himself. There is no one better than him. We would say it would be wrong for someone to to elevate themselves in another person's thinking, only if they're not deserving of that, right? Right? Someone who's inflated in his own mind or he's always bragging about himself to others. He's not really worth all that. But we wouldn't call a parent wrong for correcting a child, for speaking disrespectfully to his elder, right? Because that elder is deserving of that. He is worth that honor and that respect. And in a much greater way, God is deserving of our highest praise, our highest respect, our highest love and adoration and priority. Because he is the highest and best and the most deserving of praise anywhere. He is our greatest end, our greatest good. And there really are hints of God's pleasure in Zion in particular, all over the Old Testament. If you look even just across the page at Haggai chapter 2 verse 6, there's indications of this all over, that there's something coming and God's going to do something wonderful in this place. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. There's something coming, and it's going to be awesome. And it's going to be worth it, because God deserves it. It all belongs to Him, and it's all going to come back to Him. He is going to receive what is rightfully His. And it will specifically, I believe, Scripture bears out. It will be specifically in Mount Zion. Just for one example, Psalm 132, if you want to write that down. Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14 one of the songs, the Psalms of Ascents, says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. We could look at other instance, this, instances of this as well, where God promises to glorify his glorious house. He says, In Isaiah chapter 60. Or even Daniel's vision of this everlasting kingdom that will displace all other kingdoms and will last forever. God is pleased in the place of his abode. And he will have future glory forever there. And he wants it from these people today. Go up to the mountains. Bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified so even as these people really dishonored God by their inaction by their faithlessness by their disobedience we'll just take a few moments to apply to ourselves and be done I do believe even as they were kind of negative in this example to us It is true that God is pleased when we prioritize him and his kingdom. God is pleased when we prioritize his glory. Like a father who's pleased to see his son make a wise choice, a wise value judgment. God takes real pleasure in our faith to set aside what seems urgent to us in order by faith to do what God has said is important and truly valuable. And that should really we should really conform our thinking about God to that. God isn't he doesn't just huff at us when we do something. It's about time. No, God takes pleasure in the obedience of his saints. God is a good father, a good God. But we can also say that God is displeased when we put our concerns before his, when we pursue security or wealth or success, all things that can be gifts from God, but when they displace God and the honor of His name and how we're operating, how we're thinking and deciding, God is displeased with that. But not only is God pleased when we prioritize Him, God is glorified when we prioritize Him in His kingdom. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you the people failed to do that they sought first their own things but the message for those who would glorify God is to seek God's things first and leave your priorities up to him because when we do this we put God where he belongs he belongs first and he notices that he knows that and others will notice that too and God will be exalted in our minds. God will be exalted in their minds exactly as he should be. If I could just make a, a, maybe even a, a little bit more of a specific application. Um, God is not going to rebuke us for not building his temple today, right? But what does God value today? What, where is God making his name known? Isn't it through the church? Christ said, I will build my church. And I'm not trying to make any kind of artificial comparison. I'm really just trying to make an application to us where we are. Um, how do we know that God values his work through the church? Well, Christ died for the church, right? Christ gives gifts to the church so that it will be built up into him. He's given himself for it. He's ministering to it. He's making his name known in all the earth through the church. That is where God's glory is proclaimed, right? Not from the temple in Jerusalem today, but through this new creation, this mystery in the Old Testament. It's through the church. He's given himself to that. That's where his priority is today. Where is our priority in relation to that? Do we give ourselves to that? Do we, do we make what God is doing through the church a priority in, in the things that we decide about how we're going to spend our time or our energy? Or is it, is it not time for that? Is it time for something else? Is it part of your thinking when you make a decision, say, for your family? What will most please God? What will honor God in this situation? It should be. It should be. That's how we should think. God didn't create us for ourselves, but for Him, right? What does Romans 11 say? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. God is right to expect first place in our decisions, isn't He? In our thinking, in our priorities. That is a life well-ordered before God. Are you giving that kind of attention, that kind of deference to God, God's people will serve him even by our priorities. We must serve him by prioritizing him and, and his glory, certainly in our individual lives, but if I can make that application, as his name is proclaimed to the nations through what he's doing through Christ's church, we must prioritize service to God, worship to God, making his name famous. And may, may the Lord help us, because we do need help with that. And I have no doubt, at this time, there were many practical people who made this decision to say, now is not the right time. It's really easy to slip into that way of thinking, right? To misplace a priority. This kind of thing doesn't have to, we don't have to walk around with a billboard on our head saying what our priorities are, Right? It takes some thought and some consideration to our ways. And that's what God is calling the people to here. And we'll leave for another time how the Lord, some of the other ways, how he addresses how they're dishonoring him, devaluing him, but then also how he comforts them and helps them once they obey. And the Lord does. The Lord does help. But for our encouragement tonight, what is your priority? Are you committed to making God's name famous where you are? Are you committed to where God is working in the world? Or are you set on your own things? May the Lord help us to have wisdom and to honor his name. Let's pray together. Lord, you rebuked your people at this time for what we've called misplaced priorities. And we confess that we often do the same. And it's easy to get caught up in things of the world and not put you where you belong and not do things that extend us things that maybe would require us to live by faith Lord we are weak and we are we tend to wander to our own way but we do want to be on your way i hope that's the desire of each person here make it our desire We want to glorify you and enjoy you forever, even now in this life. Help us to make your name famous. Help us to value what you value, to love what you love, and to hate what you hate. Keep us from being complacent and to fixing on our own things. Help us to value others and to place them above ourselves. And Lord, help us to value you most of all. Help us to walk in a well ordered way, in the way of wisdom, in the way of a full heart of love for you. We ask for help in doing this. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you would turn to Hymn 311.